The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Welcome to The Week in Art with me, Ben Luke. This week we're delving into the fascinating world of artificial intelligence and exploring its impact on artists and the wider art world. From generative art to AI-generated music, the possibilities for what technology can create seem endless. But what happens when machines start to replace human artists altogether? Will we see a future where an AI generated art dominates galleries and auction houses or will it serve as a tool for artists to push the boundaries of their own creativity we'll be speaking to experts in the field as well as artists who are already working with ai to explore the exciting developments and potential pitfalls of this rapidly advancing technology hello it is the week in art and i'm ben luke and the intro you just heard was generated using the artificial intelligence bot chat gpt read by a text-to-speech program because this week's episode is indeed all about ai and the art world and based on our prompt chat gpt did a decent job at telling you what to expect it's a bit gushy i probably wouldn't have used the terms fascinating world and exciting developments and the stuff about ai's endless possibilities neither would i have mentioned ai generated music But of course, this exercise and the ChatGPT text do bring up some of the key aspects relating to AI and its use in the art world. The works being made using these technologies or exploring their impact, anxieties about machines replacing humans, the ideas of AIs being able to think and create independently, whether we can truly grasp the significance and possible effects of the technologies and those who control them, and so on. So, across the three interviews this week, we hope to make a start on exploring this subject. I talked to Noam Segal, an associate curator at the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum in New York, whose focus is on technology-based art, about AI, its history in art, its social and environmental effects, and how artists are using it today. The art newspaper's live editor, Amy Dawson, talks to the artist and writer Gretchen Andrew about making art with AI, and together they explore its wider application across the art world. And this episode's work of the week is Boris Elderson's Pseudomnesia, The Electrician, an image made using AI which caused controversy earlier this month when it was awarded a prize at the Sony Photography Awards, which Elderson refused to accept. The researcher and photographer Lewis Bush joins me to discuss the work and the controversy. Don't forget you can subscribe to the art newspaper by visiting our website and clicking the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage. You can choose from digital, complete or student subscription. Do also subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and to our sister podcast, A Brush With, and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, last month, the Guggenheim Museum in New York announced that it had appointed Noam Segal as its Associate Curator of Art and Technology. In this role, Segal is tasked with shaping the future of digital art at the museum, a process that will inevitably incorporate art made with and reflecting on AI. I spoke to her about AI's history, present and future in art. Noam, when we talk about AI and art, what do we mean by that? So I want to start maybe with a small acknowledgement. AI is a huge topic. We could sit here and speak for hours only about AI and then uh, wake up the next morning and talk about AI and art. So I feel like maybe we should drill a little bit into what AI means before we talk about AI and art, if that makes sense. (laughs) Let's do that then. AI, what is it? So AI, the way I like to explain that is kind of like divided into a number of answers, right? There is the conceptual dimension of AI. So AI is artificial intelligence. And when we say intelligence, we already imply a certain term, right? Intelligence, the way we understand it, is something that is in the possession of the individual, right? It's a highly Western perception of what intelligence means. Well, if we would look at nature, we will see that intelligence is always in the connection between things, right? In the margins, in the relation, and on and on. For example, the way that fungi would speak with trees, or the way that even today, when we use AI algorithms to predict environmental disasters, still our natural AI, right? Like birds, like different animals. Goats. Goats, exactly, right? (laughs) 
yeah, goats' behaviour ahead of earthquakes is is helping people predict exactly. when they might happen. Right? Yeah, yeah, right. So those seismographs, right, are much more um, better tools of prediction than what we have with AI right now. So this is one kind of like about the idea of intelligence. Another thing with intelligence is that intelligence implies thinking, right? It implies that we ask questions and that we raise doubt, that we can deal with complexity. Artificial intelligence cannot yet do all of those things. It doesn't think, it processes, it crunches. It presents another kind of actions and verbs that are inspired by human cognition, but they don't imitate the same processes. Now, if we have a minute, I would like to even give an example for that. Uh, imagine you have a pool with many, many balls in red and blue, okay? And some of them are shaped as donkeys and some of them are shaped as tomatoes. We can create many, many different connections of red and blue and a part of a donkey and a part of a tomato in like exponentially tons of data point, but we will never get purple, Okay, we will never get the synthesis of those two concepts. Someone has to think about that. So this is why it's kind of like it's a different form of intelligence or thinking. And and one of the kind of key critiques, and I guess which makes it interesting in terms of how artists may use it, it seems to me, is that right from the start, so much of the kind of language around AI is about adversarial things. So it's AI beating humans in Go. Or it's like AI as a kind of competitive thing. And of course, that taps into this human anxiety about machines replacing us and so on. So it seems to me that that's kind of in that space. It's sort of inherently in the space, this idea of an adversarial or competitive entity that humans have to grapple with. I think it taps back exactly to the notion of intelligence and Western intelligence that we can... On one hand, we see it clearly today in art, where we oftentimes, for many years, right, we're talking about autonomous artworks, right, and the the autonomous creator, the sole creator, and on and on. We see it also in science. But today, artists will say that they were inspired by different ideas, different people, different experiences, and same with science, right? When we see Nobel Prize today, they would usually mention their entire team. So the same way, I think, that we kind of, like, shaped out this idea of an intelligence that is inside someone possession and it has to be competitive and valued by certain parameters. It's kind of like it leaked to the issues that you mentioned. But AI is actually a combination of four main digital components, right? The first would be machine learning, right? That is mostly trained on different data sets. Natural language processing, right? NLPs like Siri and Alexa. Computer vision and expert system. Now, computer vision by itself presents a very, let's say, complex junctions of thought because uh, AIs were trained on three main different cameras. So when they see image that was produced by a different cameras with a different focal point, they face different issues. When we think about ideas like philosophical ideas in photography from Roland Barthes, like what is the studium and what is the punctum, right? AI cannot yet discern what is the center of the photograph. And at the same time, it also cancels the causality and the temporality of those data points, right? So there is some complexity there. Having said that, I'll go back to the main thing. There are four different components, as I said, and one of the uh, things that makes them work uh, so nicely is their ability to integrate and to work together, right? So those four components are basically assembling what we uh, call AI today, and they enable what is learning, right? Which means like being fed by data points, understanding, which means run different statistics on those data points and create more of them for prediction, right? And their interaction with us, that is the feedback loop that is made through computer vision and LNP. Now, one of the things that's part of that and machine learning particularly is this idea of neural networks. And again, it's this embodied term in the sense that it relates to the human brain. And again, isn't that a critique within AI systems that so many of them are kind of trained on the human brain? So that human intelligence that you were talking about versus a much broader notion of intelligence, that it is in some ways problematic. And this is something that artists are sort of looking into. 
Definitely, because as you say, this infiltrates to much more deeper issues than just uh, imitating human brain, because our way of thinking always have a causality, right, an implication in it. It's usually framed by time, and it's usually framed by our body experiences, right? Our body also function as a receiver of different signals that are translated into data in our brain, right? But AIs does not have that. They don't have this big infrastructure of receptors and enzymes and, you know, and those kind of bodily understandings. Therefore, the way I see it, there should be a new language to deal with this kind of objecthood. It's not an object as a painting or a photography, but it's also not an object as a quasi-object, right? As um, the way we think about a cell phone, for example, that are connecting us to one another and to different platform. AI presents a sort of an agency, but at the same time, it's not a full-on agency as humans or other natural beings. Which uh, leads me to another aspect of AI. And when you ask what AI is, I feel that we have to also consider that. Because if you translate that to environmental terms, right, it translates perfectly. And we can say, for example, that an AI, one AI trained model is like 125 one trips of carbon dioxide emissions between New York to Beijing. The environmental costs of AI are immense, and I believe that hopefully they will become more a central part of this discussion. Right, yeah, and that's crucial, isn't it? Because there's a lot of stuff about NFTs in relation to their ruinous effect on the environment. But it's probably less well documented that AIs too, because it relies on massive amounts of data in the same way. And so we're talking about massive server farms pumping out carbon. So basically, it's, it's a similar thing to NFTs in that sense. I would say NFTs are uh, heavily dependent on uh, the electricity grid. And they are definitely a polluting industries. And then blockchain, of course, it depends what kind of blockchain, right? If we're looking at Ethereum, it's a different thing. But AI has a much larger structure and a much bigger provenance and resonance around the globe right now. So its environmental costs, like in terms of carbon emissions and, and on, it's actually larger than NFTs. NFTs create heavy, heavy load on the electricity grid, also AIs. The big AI companies like Microsoft and Amazon and Google, they license with uh, fossil fuel companies, right, to help them locate and extract fuel from the bottom of the earth, but also cobalt, lithium. And it's, it's a different kind of industry that is very, very big and polluting. Let's begin talking about art, because it seems to me that so much of the art around AI is actually directly reflecting the cultures, if you like, or the social problems or the issues relating to AI. There is a whole subset, if you like, of art that is actually just using artificial intelligence to produce art. But it seems to me that much of the sort of interesting stuff around AI is actually about its social properties, if you like. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I think artists as being artists and not necessarily technologists are more interested in the traits that first we can easily connect to, but also the ones that we can tinker on. Also, many artists are committed to social justice. Uh, so I guess like in AI and now when it's being so prevalent all over, we can see possible implications and artists' natural tendency is to play with those tools. Absolutely. So was that present right from the start of artists' experiments with AI, if you like? Because we're talking about a tradition now. Artists have been working with AI for decades. So tell us a bit about that. So actually, it's it's a great question. And no, like the way that the first AI work started that was made by Harold Cohen in the 60s in the University of San Diego uh, and was called Aaron, it was a painting algorithm, right? Drawing algorithm. And like many works that follow that are kind of like categorized under the idea of net art or web art, right? They were generative codes, definitely. But at the same time, they were not as complex as the AI system that we're using these days. And I will explain a little bit. So specifically, Harold Cohen was trying to code the act of drawing, right? After a while, he was even able to teach the code Aaron to paint, right? Using brushes and creating kind of like more of a pixel art arise. But at the same time, Cohen was working with what we call symbolic AI, 
Now, symbolic AI is very, very different than the AI that we use nowadays, right? Symbolic AI is built upon language as logics, right? This field of philosophical understanding about syntax. For example, they use platforms like a case-based learning, which is much more focused on a particular complex problem, right? Rather than creating representation and data of it, it was kind of like drilling down to a one thing. It's more like in the spirit of small data right? Or another platform would be inductive logic programming, right? To teach uh, inductive thinking. Those platforms are not integrated in today's AI. Some of the neural software is trying to implement those, I have to say. But basically, Aaron was not dealing with the issues that we deal with today. And as this entire generation of net art that dealt with mathematical patterns and generators of pixel movement and on and on, the layers that they had to deal with were just much more limited than what we have nowadays. Right. Okay. So in terms of that expansion, then when does that begin? When does like the modern kind of AI, if you like, begin? What period are we talking about? So I would say that around the 90s, we have a non-AI work, right? But Namjoon Pike, the Internet Dreams from 94, I always think of it as like the first AI work, although, of course, it was walls of video that were transmitting from different stations. But it kind of like uh, captured the idea of simultaneity, of accelerated movement and transmission of data that is multidirectional. So that's one thing, but I think we have to mention in that sense, the artist uh, Lynn Hirschman-Lisson. Lynn is doing that since the 80s, and she's a real pioneer of those technologies, also creating her own chatbots, her own dream machines, her own AI. So definitely there were a number of pioneers in this field. And the great thing about Lynn is that she's still there in that space. I Absolutely. Mean, in, in the most recent Venice Biennale, she made a piece which was kind of a mini history of artificial intelligence and actually tapped into so many of the concerns that you were expressing earlier on about you know environment and also the sort of insidious uses of ai in broader culture right yeah i agree yeah it was a great work indeed so from lynn's early experiments then where do we move on to from there so today we can see, let's say, if we need to categorize that, I would say that there are artists who are critiquing and making work that deal with the technology, but they don't actually necessarily experiment with the technology, right? So it's more of a reflection on what it could be, how are the inner workings of AI works and, and that. And in this group, we can mention, of course, Trevor Peglin, Hito Sterl, Pierre Wieg. But beyond that, we have artists who are really actively working with those tools now every day, like Yena Sutella, who's working on neural systems and, you know, she teaches her AI alien language. And then there is a feedback where the AI processes back that language into other objects that are alien. Miao Ying is an amazing artist in that field. Agnesha Courant, uh, Stephanie Dinkins, Lawrence Leck. Uh, Martin Sims, American artist, Zach Blass. There are so many. Shuli Chang is an artist from Taiwan who working with those technologies also from very, very early on. And now we have younger practitioners like Rachel Lawson or Chao Fei who are working with the same technology. So there is a really wide spectrum of people. In addition to that, of course, there are also artists who specifically explored the digital domain since the 90s, right? And now only currently getting more and more attention from institutions and critics and the markets. Those artists, again, emerge from this idea of net art or web art, but also connecting genealogies of conceptualism and post-minimalism. And there we can find Rhea Myers, Anna Riedler, Harm van der Dorpel, uh, Sarah Miuhas. All of those artists are working only on web art for many, many years, crypto chain and, and different generative codes. For example, Sarmiu has a crypto project that called Bitcoin started in 2015, and I think it already ended. So definitely there is a great development and evolution in that field. Something that's rather skewed the pitch around AI art is the huge prominence in the media reporting about it that's been given to generative AIs. That's like the AI portrait that sold for a lot of money at auction and so on. To what extent is that kind of art worthy of critical assessment? To what extent is it making a contribution to that space that is of value, do you think? 
I think the interesting space for me is where artists are trying to tinker and play with those technologies, meaning when we use a technology in its designated application, right, it's the same as taking a digital camera, right, and doing this and click. It's just that's what it was meant to do, and that's great, right? But I'm personally more interested in different experiments that are also could be a failed experience, right? Failure is a highly important notion uh, in art and in nature. So therefore, for me, I guess I'm trying to see how artists are engaging with the technologies and trying to pivot their initial designation. That's one thing. Another thing would be a trend that I see more and more right now, that there are many artists who are building their own AIs or building their own data sets. And by that, they generate a different kind of code, right? Their code is calibrated on different objective, right? Not that most of the codes are non-transparent, but of the uh, big AIs, but let's say there are there are a few that are white codes. But the thing is, when they build their own AI and their own data set, the code is responding differently, right? Because it's calibrated on kind of like a different set of values and objectives. And therefore, the inner workings and the output that we will get oftentimes would be very different than what we'll get if we'll process the same request from a commercial common corporate based AI. I think this is really crucial in the field, it seems to me, is that there is a lot of pessimism actually around AI. We we talked about the environmental costs and so on. But one of the areas in which there is a sort of social value to AIs is in fighting back through this kind of more community-based construction of artificial intelligence. James Bridle recently wrote about a community of Maori people who have been using AI to effectively transcribe their own language and owning the property of that language, if you like, and therefore resisting the ongoing colonialism that which is which is diminishing that culture. And it seems to me that this is an interesting territory in which artists can act. From what you're saying, that's what they're doing. They're developing their own AIs to reclaim this territory to a certain extent. Absolutely. I think it's it's very accurate the way you said that. And also this uh, Maori community and other indigenous communities across the world have found huge uh, and immense advantages in using AI, but they're creating their own AI, right? They're not necessarily working with the more corporate-based AIs. And in that sense, I just I want to tap into what you said in terms of optimism, right? AI is an amazing tool if we think of it as a learning aid for early education, right? And it could be kind of like embedded with those friendly robots and learn what six-year-old with difficulties in reading, right? And see their development and process and to customize individuated worksheets, but at the same time also reducing the workload in the classroom from the teacher and give more customized base to that. It's not going to threaten the teacher's jobs or careers, and it's definitely create a more supportive ecosystem in classrooms. So Again, AI could be a really uh, incredible tool, I think, in some things. Yet, at the same time, and as you said, right, it raises very, very complex ethical questions. And artists could be super uh, fundamental in repairing AI, both in the terms of tinkering with the technologies and trying to create alternative AIs, and it's something that is already happening, but also something that is a little more timely right now. And I'm sure you know, like the big AI companies are trying, they want to be on the good side of history, right? The designers want to do the good thing, but they're really seriously grappling with some heavy ethical questions that you want to ask themselves. How can we create one code that responds to people's needs in different places around the world? And I'll give a small example. In Denmark, it's very, very common to go to a public space and leave the stroller with the baby outside in the cold, right? And some Danish immigrants were here in New York recently and left their baby outside, right? With the baby inside the stroller. And of course, someone called the authorities, both the police (laughs) and... um, the welfare authorities. So when asking AI, people are going to ask ChatGPT the same they will ask, they ask Google right now, right? Like, is it okay to leave a stroller with a baby outside? One has to get one answer in Denmark and get another answer in New York. So th- there are some very serious questions that they need to still overcome. And lastly, I wanted to ask, in terms of 
programming and collecting for an institution like the Guggenheim, when a field is this nascent, this kind of sprawling, when so much is happening, is that an advantage as a curator or a kind of minefield, if you like? Well, I guess it's both, right? I guess every difficulty is also a great opportunity. I think it's a very, very exciting moment in the development in AI, and we can already see that it could lead to very different outcomes. For example, as a museum, you know, as every collecting institution, we have to also think about questions of conservation. The Guggenheim specifically have made impactful work in that field, as my predecessor, John Ippolito, made in the 90s, creating uh, the protocols of uh, variability and basically producing a variability questionnaire to ask about conservation in terms of migration, emulation, storage, or reinterpretation, right? And the conservation department at the Guggenheim was heavily significant in contributing to those efforts. At the same time, those questions now with AI uh, supplement other dimensions, right? Because all of those categories are not exactly the same when we think about AI. It's a living object, right? It's a living thing. Now I'm going to complicate that further, Maybe in five or three or 15 years, we're going to have quantum computing. How are we going to collect quantum-based art? It's even more slippery than AI. Well, the mind boggles. Maybe we'll chat about quantum computing in three years' time or five years' time or 15 years' time, whatever. But thank you for now, Noam, very much. Thank you so much, Ben. You can watch Noam Segal's series of talks about technology and art called The Algorithmic State, including interviews with the artists James Bridal, Kada Atia and Hito Stael at noamsegal.net. Coming up, the artist Gretchen Andrew and researcher and photographer Lewis Bush. But first, here's this week's news bulletin. As Sudan descends into civil war, sources in the capital Khartoum say the country's museums are caught in the crossfire. The fighting in Khartoum and elsewhere is a result of a power struggle within the country's military leadership, with clashes between the regular army and a paramilitary force called the Rapid Support Forces, or RSF. The Sudan National Museum, filled with Nubian objects, has been the scene of fierce fighting between the rival factions in the capital since the 14th of April, according to reports. The extent of damage to the museum is still unclear, but leading Sudanese artists and museum professionals have expressed concern that the collection could be subject to looting. Meanwhile, artists associated with the Sudanese pro-democracy movement are reported to have been arrested by fighters loyal to the RSF amid the violence. The French government this week released its long-awaited policy on the issue of the restitution of cultural property. The 85-page report has been written by Jean-Luc Martinez, a former director of the Louvre. Martinez told the art newspaper that the report recommends studying the requests for restitutions by eight African countries to establish a criteria of returnability. Rather than basing this on an ideological or moral standpoint, he said he wishes to take a pragmatic approach in order to define a framework policy of restitutions. The government has already implemented a on art looted by the Nazis and expects two further laws to be passed soon, relating to human remains and to items from the former colonies of Western empires, which the report defines in global terms rather than just Africa and its former French dominions. And finally, the shortlist for this year's Turner Prize was announced on Thursday. The prize, administered by Tate, is awarded to a British artist for an outstanding exhibition or other presentation of their work in the past year. The nominees are Barbara Walker, Jessie Darling, Ghislaine Lung and Rory Pilgrim. An exhibition of their works will be held at the Towner Gallery in Eastbourne in southern England from the 28th of September to the 14th of April next year. The winner, who will receive £25,000, will be announced on the 5th of December. You can read all these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Take a new look at the art of the 20th and 21st centuries. This May, Christie's marquee 20th, 21st century sales in New York comprise eight auctions featuring masterpieces from the major figures in the vanguard of art to the boundary-pushing artists of today. Henri Rousseau, Jean-Michel Basquiat, Yoyo Kusama and Barclay Hendricks are just a few of the artists featured this season. Preview the works during the public exhibition at Christie's Rockefeller Centre Galleries beginning on the 29th of April and in the meantime, browse the sales online and explore the related features on christies.com. 
Welcome back. Now, Gretchen Andrews, an artist who writes for the art newspaper about new technologies and the art scene. Amy Dawson, our live editor, spoke to Gretchen about using AI and its wider applications and implications across the art world. So, Gretchen, thank you so much for joining us to talk about the buzzword of the moment, artificial intelligence. It's kind of replaced the buzzword of yesteryear, NFTs, which you also know about. And... It's good for the audience to know that you actually write this fantastic blog for us on the website called Art Decoded, where you do exactly that. You decode all of these kind of digital art and tech terms that are proliferating all the time and that are so difficult to understand from kind of a traditional art background or even just if you're not in the tech world. So tell us a little bit about your blog and the things that you've discussed on there. Yeah, so Art Decoded, as you mentioned, its mission is really to bring the art world up to speed with definitions and understandings about technology that are increasingly becoming essential for understanding what is going on in contemporary art. And so the the blog kind of follows me as a digital artist, as someone who works with NFTs and artificial intelligence and is spending a lot of time in these worlds and finding that those things that I'm coming across, that even the galleries and the institutions that are really involved in this, they want clarity on. And I see it as a really important way of increasing technical literacy so that we can both set better parameters for understanding which of the art is interesting or good and actually creating new value criteria from it, but then also being really empowered as an art world to not be so scared to move into these places. Let's talk a little bit about your practice as an artist. And I think many people will be interested to know that you actually come from a tech world in Silicon Valley. Do you want to kind of give us a little overview about how you became an artist and what you make now and how you work with tech? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, I studied information theory and information systems and really thought um, when I was in university that my career and my life and my love was going to be in the tech industry. In, in college, I dressed up as the Mozilla Firefox for Halloween like a couple years in a row. Like it was like my <laughs> obsession. But when I got to Silicon Valley, I really found that these tools, these, you know, AI and blockchain and all of these things that were going on 10 years ago, we're having like a local peak 10 years ago as well. We're just being used to manipulate our attention were being very much used in the service of selling us things. And I got pretty disillusioned. But at the same time, instead of fully getting disillusioned, I said, okay, actually, I don't think the technology is the problem. It's sort of the paradigm and how it's being used is just too limiting. So I left that with the um, performative prompt, can technology turn me into something that I'm not yet? And I decided I was going to become an artist and so that's taken many forms. Um, but in my work, what I tend to do is I say that I hack systems of power with art, code, and glitter. So I manipulate Google search results, which has the side effect of manipulating Google's AI. I reappropriate Facebook tracking software. And my most recent work is on what I call degenerative art, which very much explores the definition of what generative art is by considering its opposite, considering its negative, considering creative destruction. And, you know, the results do what the column does as well, which is if you engage with my work, you end up learning about these technologies and the edges of their power as well. It would be great if you could give us kind of like a tangible example of a work where you've used artificial intelligence. I wouldn't say I use artificial intelligence. I sort of attack artificial intelligence through my work. So for example, one of the series is that I've become known for is my division board series. And with this, I make physical on canvas artwork about what I want. And for example, I want to be on the cover of Art Forum. And so now when you Google cover of Art Forum, what comes up are my drawings, my vision boards, my desires to be on the cover of Art Forum. And the way that I've been able to do that is because I understand the way that Google is learning about truth, the way it's learning about reality, um, the way it's natural language processing can't deal with desire or nuance or metaphor or symbolism. And so what actually happens is not only when you Google cover of art forum, am I the top search results? Google and Google's AI have now learned that 
the most important covers of art forum look a lot like my artwork. When I've been speaking to people who are dealing with AI in the art world, one of the things that they say is there's a real difference between AI art, and that's kind of this idea of art that is generated using AI tools that doesn't necessarily have a great deal of concept behind it, not a great deal of manufactured artist data and resource. So these big platforms like Midjourney that take images from the internet and you put in a few prompts and it creates what it calls artificial intelligence art. But there's a real different side of the art world where artists are using artificial intelligence more as a tool or in your case as a way to deconstruct ideas. Can you talk to me a little bit about other interesting ways that artists are using artificial intelligence, maybe some that you admire that are not in this AI art genre? Yeah, because like you're right, the um, using AI to generate images, and I think we'll get into this a little bit more. I have a lot of opinions about sort of the ethics around that. But there are a lot of artists who've been working for decades. Like Anna Riddler is a great example. She makes her own AIs. And I think it's quite different when you're constructing a system and its rules and its logic and playing with it. What she does and controls in the process has a lot more artistic decisions than someone who's just plugging in some things or maybe crafting in some things. I think there's a lot of great crafting that does come out of a dolly or a mid-journey. And when you're talking about creating in this way, you mean like putting together big data sets or literally coding the logic and rules that computers then use to produce these things, right? Yeah, exactly. Just to decode. <laughs> Thank you for decoding it. Yeah, that's perfect. And another great example of someone who does this is Jake Elways, who's one of my absolute favorite artists. He takes the data sets that are being used by a lot of these AIs and he removes them and inserts a very small amount of changes into them. In particular, he inserts drag queens into data sets that are identifying people and gender and I forget the exact numbers, but in like 10,000 images, if he puts in like 10 drag queens, all of a sudden the concept of what gender is has been exploded and changed and completely delineated because he's able to show that this whole idea that where do these data sets come from? The truth is all these data sets rely very heavily on language, on what we consider to be the bounds of the difference between things that are not so clear, man and woman, black and white, even orange and yellow, rich and poor. These are not words with strict boundaries, but the AI data sets are created pretending that there are very strict and quintessential differentiators between a lot of human nuance. And so someone like he and Anna, they take the whole logic of AI and show both how vulnerable it is, but also how beautiful it can be when you back up and you're not just using it as a tool, but you're creating the tool differently than the way these tech companies are currently creating them. I'm fascinated to know, and not to say that AI art is, you know, a closed kind of sphere that artists work in and artists only work in that one thing. Of course, people tend to branch out into all different kinds of tech you work not just with AI, but with blockchain and various different Web3 related programs. But would you say that artists who are using things like AI, working with that as a tool, is it a very collaborative community or is it like a very lonely enterprise working with computers in this way? Yeah, I mean, like, so I think there's kind of two important things in this. Um, the first is that, like, there are a lot of artists who work with technology because they're interested in evergreen concepts that have been in the art world forever. Like, for me, it's power. I'm interested about power and institutional critique and the critique of power from the inside. And someone like Jake is very interested in gender and very interested in identity. And, you know, we get classified as artists who are working with technology, but also really we're working in histories that extend very deep into art history in these other directions. I think that an artist who's sort of playing with the crafting of AI, they're part of a different history. I think it depends on on the exact artist. But there is a huge community of artists and people who are doing this and playing with this. And I think a lot of those artists who have 
been crafting from that space for a long time, really accepting the AI for what it is, but learning to influence it and get what you want from it has roots in sculpting, has roots in painting as well. But especially because of how strong and like fierce the NFT community is, a lot of these artists, especially in LA, have, I would think, a very strong community, but also one that doesn't necessarily have a language to distinguish the good from the bad yet. So I want to kind of move on and talk about some of the wider uses of AI in the art world. I know, for example, of course, there's all of this artistic kind of flourishing in this field, which is very important to emphasize has not been happening just in 2023, but actually for a long time now. But also there's really interesting ways of applying this technology to problems that exist in the art world more generally. So one example I wanted to talk about is kind of cultural heritage. For example, if you took lots of photographs of a desert in Mexico and you're looking for archaeological remains, but you don't really know where to start looking and you insert a bunch of images into this AI that shows sites that did actually turn out to have archaeological remains underneath them. AI is able to sort through these unsearched, untapped sites and say this looks like a promising site to do a preliminary dig. That's incredible. What other kind of examples in cultural heritage do you know of that we could discuss? Uh, Yeah, I mean, like, I do want to bring up sort of anything that AI is being used in business is like the art world's a big business, right? And identifying buying windows and what work someone's likely to purchase and when to contact them and how often to contact them is the way that a lot of AI is being used in the corporate setting for big enterprise deals. And I would hope that the top galleries that have huge databases have started to apply this for their own efficiency as well. I also think in the more cultural heritage area, thinking about I'm not just kind of where to find artifacts and possibly dating those artifacts, but also identifying forgeries, unknown paintings, kind of evaluating a data set of Jackson Pollock's and having an AI give an opinion about whether or not they think this is a real one strikes me as an opportunity because to some extent, this is a lot of science and data has been used in trying to identify whether this really is a loss for mirror or not. Because as you know, AI is kind of like these, like the deep learning or these black box systems where it's not like AI can come back and say, we think that this mole is cancerous because of X, Y, Z. It just says, I've looked at a bunch and I know which ones are and which ones aren't from the data. And this one looks like it is. So that same sort of process can be applied in a lot of art identification. And it's also being used to kind of identify loot. So there's a couple of apps now. The FBI just brought one out, but there's also one in Germany where you can scan something at work and it will search its database to find something similar to say, oh, that might be something that we're missing that has been lost. It actually belongs to this country, which is kind of crazy. And these things just get smarter and smarter. The more times people are taking photos and adding to that database, you know, the more it's able to draw on these data points and make even more accurate findings. Yeah, I remember some story of um, like there was this bird that was like drawn on some vase or something. And some researcher who researches, I don't know if it was birds or um, patterns of like human migration and connection, was able to prove that two different parts of the world had actually been in trade and communication hundreds of years before we thought, because there was no other way that this particular bird would have been present in this kingdom. And I think that there is so much richness in the canon of art history that can be used for other understandings of culture and society and science and how art is often the only record that we have from those times. I mean, it's great to talk about the uses of AI and these are going to continue to grow, but we will get to the meaty kind of cons around AI and the ethics questions. But other ways that it's super useful is you can use AI to essentialize really complicated texts or theory or You can even use it to write material in a really understandable way, not suggesting you do that for your blog, (laughs) Gretchen. But there are really interesting ways to apply this. And so another one I wanted to talk about is ChatGPT. I also write a column for the art newspaper where 
I talk about the ways that social media and the art world come together. And for one of them, we did a guest blog where we discussed how chat GPT, which people cannot stop talking about, can be used to very quickly write, whether it be social media content around cultural aspects or to write press releases. We actually received a press release from Gagosian Gallery today about Alex Israel's new show. And it says at the top, written by ChatGPT, which is crazy. So yeah, talk to me a bit about how you can see this kind of technology changing, maybe like critique and commentary in the art world. Yeah. Um, so I mean, like, I think an important thing to mention in this is to realize that while AI is particularly good and ChatGPT is particularly good at making some concepts very clear, um, which is something we definitely need more of in the art world, like is, you know, curatorial statements that make sense to like literally anybody. But AI is always only built on what's been created before. And anytime we're struggling to create a different understanding or an understanding that is maybe expands our idea of what something is or who it is, or I think a lot about discrimination in particular, it's being taught and seeded by a way of understanding that has always existed. And I do believe that artists are often at this frontier of trying to create understanding in completely new ways. A lot of that value can't happen until there's a basic understanding. And I think that's where we're going to see this help a lot in communication in the art world, which is to say, we can't talk about what's new and what's different and different ways of thinking until we're all on the same page. And getting people onto the same page is a process in normalization, which is something that AI writing does very well. And this is why when people ask me now, you know, is AI going to kill the artist? Which also, let's face, is not a question that's new. Every time a new technology or a new concept comes up, like, as soon as conceptual art began and anything could be art, people felt like the artist was dead and art had died. This is the same. No artist will continue to innovate. AI and all of the, you know, kind of additional technologies that are happening right now will build into that. They will take it to another level. But I don't think that in 100 years time, if we're all still here, we'll be worried about what AI did to art. Well, I think it's really important, like in that conversations, like you're really bringing up this idea that like none of this happens in, in isolation, like an artist can exist outside of the art world. An artist is someone who makes art, right? An artist is someone like what definitions are we working with here? And that to remember that AI is often in the service of capital. AI doesn't do anything on its own. It gets put into the world to try and create value. And that's not an inherent part of the artistic process. It's an inherent part of the art world. But going into a market and establishing value in a set way is not necessary for art to exist. Let's move on to the cons around AI and art. And I don't want to do like a lot of AI bashing, but of course, there's been a bunch of controversies, lots of headlines in mainstream media outlets the things that are really bothering people, the things that are really kind of niggling at people's imaginations are these big open source platforms or big things like Midjourney or Dali that anyone can go in and make an image, I say in inverted commas, using a few prompts, words that they're choosing of what the work should look like. And then it scrapes from images that are available either from the internet or wherever. And that therefore creates kind of what people are considering a fake image and taking, borrowing from lots of other artists. So tell me, what do you think some of the cons are? What about the ethics of borrowing from all of these artists and the, the ethical copyright issues and all of that? Yeah, I think the biggest ethical concern with this sort of artwork is that it really obscures what I think is a very important and dangerous conversation about what this technology is already doing and is going to continue to do geopolitically in governments, in the hands of people other than artists. And you're right, like in these conversations about pros and cons, we tend to be like, oh, well, like cons, discrimination, like pros, it's creative and artists can use it. And these are not on the same scale. I think that the damage that is being done because we're not having the conversations around the vulnerabilities of this, the way that foreign governments are using this, the way that 
It's becoming part of our systems that we're literally sleeping with because they wake us up in the morning. I've recently come to the conclusion that it's very obscuring to be making art with this right now. And I think it's more equivalent to making art with nuclear bombs. Like, you know, like, you know, we think about <laughs> this feels so inevitable that AI comes into our society and it comes into our world and there's nothing we can really do about it yet. But like that isn't what happened with nuclear. What happened with nuclear is at a certain point, scientists and thought leaders and people really came together and said, to the extent that we can, like, how do we put the brakes on this? And how do we have a conversation about whether or not this should have been done? Because I think using it for things like art does feel like it doesn't accept the gravity of the water implications of this technology. Yeah. And I think that, you know, there's this open letter petition internationally now where lots of people are saying we need to slow down, we need to stop developing this technology until we really understand the ramifications of it. And obviously we're talking about this from an art perspective, but as you say, there's huge repercussions in a wider multi-sector sense for the world. And yeah, I think artists who use it creatively have to acknowledge that they're part of making that conversation difficult. And so I just wanted to end the conversation, Gretchen, by saying, do you have any kind of predictions hopefully not apocalyptic, of how this technology will be used in the art world, for example. What Are we going to see a lot more AI art? Is it going to become increasingly problematic or more accepted? What are your predictions? Ooh, I'm inclined to think of this as a bubble and a trend. Um, like It's not going anywhere. It's folded in. It's part of things. But I think we're in a moment of overheat and overinterest and that the best thing that we can do right now is enjoy the parts of it that are kind of exciting and curious and cause us to question concepts and things in art history that we've been thinking about forever. Because when this sort of current moment is over, there are going to be fewer people that emerge from it as important and different. And I think a lot of those practitioners have been making AI art for decades. Thank you so much for joining us, Gretchen. Thank you for having me, Amy, and thank you for the art newspaper. You can read Gretchen's articles on art and technology on the website or the app. And finally, this episode's work of the week is Pseudomnesia, the electrician, an image by the Berlin-based German photographer Boris Eldergsen. The work was created using DALI 2, an image generator developed by OpenAI, the San Francisco-based company that also created ChatGPT. It won the creative category of the Sony Photography Awards 2023 Open competition, but Eldergsen refused to accept the prize in order to drive debate about the technology. Lewis Bush is a photographer who's researching the implications of computer vision and machine intelligence on photojournalism. And I spoke to him about the work, the controversy it's created, and the wider implications of AI for the discipline of photography. First of all, Lewis, what is Pseudomnesia by Boris Eldergsen? It is an image from a series that he produced using one of these generative AI systems and then entered into a quite high-profile competition, which then, interestingly, uh, it won in one of the categories, and that has generated quite a lot of interesting discussion. Indeed it has. I mean, it's an apparently black-and-white image which has a lot of commonalities with a kind of portrait photography that you might see, for instance, in the National Portrait Gallery. It's like a historic photographic image, effectively, isn't it? Yeah, it looks very like a picture that you might have seen maybe made in the early 20th century, like 1930s, 1940s, shows two women, one leaning on the other. And yes, it has a very kind of monochrome, old-fashioned aesthetic. And do we know exactly what the criteria that he put into DALI, which is this programme, were? Has he actually been explicit about his own description of what the image should be? Uh, not that anywhere that I've seen, which is interesting. But he has said some, said some quite interesting things about the difference between this kind of photography and what we might think of as kind of conventional photography, including kind of dubbing it promptography. So photography driven by prompts, i.e. whatever he's put in. So yes, it would be really interesting to see what's produced these images because having worked with them myself, I know that actually it often takes a lot of wrangling of the words to get the kind of result that maybe you have in your head. 
out of them. They call it prompt engineering, don't they? There's, there's this term prompt engineering, which is about achieving the right kind of elegance in the prompt and efficiency in the prompt that eventually ends up with the best possible image or, or whatever product you want. Yeah, Absolutely, yeah. And, and also kind of understanding a little bit about how these systems work and how they interpret language, because sometimes what seems to a human like a very straightforward instruction isn't necessarily interpreted the same way by one of these systems, although they're getting better and better, not just at producing the images, but actually also understanding our wants, what we ask for from them. I would guess that's part of the reason a lot of these systems have been opened up to public use, is that that's actually part of the training of them, is to improve the way they interact with us. But yes, absolutely, a big part is still just actually second-guessing what they need to produce a particular kind of output. The interesting thing about this case is that in his entry for the Sony Photography Awards, Boris Elderson suggested that he was doing this in good faith, in that he is a photographer who has become interested in these automatic generation systems, neural networks, etc. And that somehow, because it was in the open category, because it was in the creative section, therefore, this was a plausible entry into it. It's called a warranty, you know, and one of the things that the awards people said was that in his warranties, he said one thing, and now he's done something else. So what do you make of all that? Yeah, so there's kind of interesting differing of accounts, let's say, between the award and the photographer. And so obviously, I don't know which of those accounts is close to the truth. (laughs) But I think it illustrates some of the stakes involved with these kinds of images that on the one hand, for a competition, potentially, there's quite a lot of reputational reward for seizing the moment and kind of recognising these kinds of images as artistically interesting. But equally, quite a lot of potential reputational risk if they were to take one of these images as it were at face value thinking that it was a conventional image and present it as such and then for it to be revealed that it wasn't so I think that's what's interesting about how the two parties involved are let's say clashing about exactly what's happened as it shows a little bit what's at stake with these images when they're displayed and and kind of rewarded in public yeah and of course now he said I did this and he used this exact term as a cheeky monkey. <laughs> so what he was doing was effectively he was subverting the award. He was doing this to raise debate and then didn't accept the prize as a sort of gesture of that concept, if you like. Yeah, exactly. It's a kind of provocateur maybe a bit, which, you know, is very valid and, and definitely arts prizes need that kind of provoking because, you know, let's be honest, the way they work tends to be quite conservative and you know particularly if you think about the way jury system works in the arts it tends to reward work that's not particularly pushing the margins in any sense aesthetically or conceptually you know so in a way it's interesting that he submitted an image that looks like something from the 20th century looks like a very old-fashioned image not something considering what these systems are able to produce you know the, the wild kind of fever dreams that you can you can generate with them It's quite interesting to me that that was the choice of image that actually kind of went in and then also was rewarded. I think one other point is, you know, and I'm not saying again that the jury were hoodwinked here, that they didn't know what they were looking at, but I mean, having been on juries myself in the past, you know, I know what it's like. You look at a lot of material often very quickly and, you know, you can totally see how these kinds of images, which you do have to look at very closely to see the little clues that they're not conventional photograph. It's quite understandable how images like this would slip through. I mean, I'm doing research at the moment around newspapers and picture desks and their engagement with these things. And it's the same issue that, you know, picture editors look at huge numbers of images and literally just don't have the time to make these kind of close inspections that you need to identify these images as synthetic. Yeah, I mean, if there's a moral question in terms of photography, in terms of this, it is about reportage and documentary photography, isn't it, more than anything else? Yeah, I mean, photography's got this very vexed relationship with the truth. We all know that photographs are often manipulated, they're often misattributed, you know, but they have captions that say they're something that they're not, and they're sometimes staged. So we all know that pictures are often deeply misleading. But at the same time, we all have this very, I think, culturally ingrained belief in photography that instinctively when we see a picture, a photograph, we believe it. And it's almost a secondary thing to then question it and ask, is this what it really seems to be? And I think that's what's so powerful about these systems, 
both positively and negatively is that they tap into the fact that, you know, for pretty much all of us, even people who work with these images, with images every day, seeing is still basically believing. And it takes a lot of effort to question every image that you encounter. Exactly. And do you know, I mean, like in your research around picture desks and how they're responding to this particular question, are there systems that they put in place that aren't foolproof, but are at least give due diligence to each image that they receive? How is it possible to to even do that? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is not really. Photojournalism particularly is still very much based on trust. And so for now, at least, the way that most newspapers respond to this problem is that they rely on sources that they trust. For example, you know, major picture agencies. The trouble there is, of course, you're also relying on them using sources that they trust. So at some point, probably there will be a kind of technological attempt to solve this problem. But then I think that will be interesting because what that will probably lead to is a kind of arms race between the systems used to develop these images on the one hand and then the systems used to detect them and kind of call them out for what they are. Absolutely. But then, of course, this, as we said, was it, it was in the creative category, this particular photograph. And, of course, to talk about photography as somehow separate from technological developments, as you say, is, is absurd. And so much photography over recent decades has been about finding new ways to describe what a photograph might even be. So within that field, the idea of involving artificial intelligence is not in itself a novel idea, really. Yeah, I mean, clearly these images, they're produced in a way that's different to the way a traditional photographic image is made. In other ways, they have a lot in common with photographs. And, you know, I think it's really worth saying this, that photographs are not really reality. They're an abstraction of reality, as you said, Ben, through a technological device. And in a sense, these synthetic or AI-generated images are the same. The difference is there's no lens involved, there's no sensor you know, what they do is they learn by being shown hundreds of thousands or millions of photographs. They learn essentially how a camera works and they learn how to generate images that look like they came from a camera without a camera being involved. So, you know, in some ways, it depends on your definition you apply to these things, whether or not you kind of view them as photographic or, or something entirely new. And of course, the point that you raise in your article, which actually I think is in a way the most serious point of all of this, is that these systems are using images which may be copyrighted, but if they're, even if they're not copyrighted, they were created and they are unremunerated and uncredited images by other people. And so th- therefore there is a co-opting, often by vast corporations, of other people's material. And that seems to me to be a massive concern. Yeah, this is a huge problem that really goes back to kind of the early days of kind of modern AI development that, you know, the development of these systems began in places like universities where there was a kind of fair use approach, let's say, to materials that were often collected from the internet and then used in a university setting to develop early kind of AI systems. And the trouble in a way is that that attitude has kind of continued even now that these things have left that setting and really become you know as you said the property and the products of very large companies and I mean in some ways I think it creates a lot of interesting questions and problems like what are the ethics of photographers potentially being automated out of their jobs I'm not saying that this stuff is going to replace photography but it might replace certain kinds of photography So what are the ethics of photographers being automated out of their jobs by systems that have been trained on their images and for which they haven't been paid? On the other hand, it also illustrates maybe another thing, which is the fact that things like copyright law haven't really kept up with changes in technology. You know, it's obviously different in different countries, but for example, in the UK, copyright law is still basically quite a kind of Victorian conception of intellectual property and and ownership. And, you know, you could take another perspective on these things, which is that actually what they do is they learn by looking at existing images. That's also what artists and photographers do. I wouldn't suggest that a photographer should have to pay, you know, two pence to every person whose work has influenced them. But you could take a similar kind of perspective on these things that, you know, actually it's more like influence or inspiration. I'm not necessarily taking that position. I'm just putting it out there as the kind of devil's advocate. (laughs) 
What do you think about Boris Eldergson's strategy, finally? I mean, on the one hand, you could say, well, he's kind of succeeded in what he was doing. But in a way, isn't the role of the artist working with these systems actually to conceptualise it in the way that he has, but make it a longer term project? In a way, hasn't he kind of exploded his idea at a point when it was potentially could have got more interesting, if you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think currently a lot of the artistic interest around these systems is in this idea of whether people can tell that they're synthetic or not. And I think in some ways, that's quite a natural thing at the start of a new technology appearing and being used for arts. But I think in some ways, that's the least artistically interesting thing that these tools are capable of. And I think putting his work slightly to one side, I think once we get past this point of these big uproars about images being entered into things that turn out to be not what we think they are, that's actually going to be the really exciting point with these technologies where we actually start using them for other things that they can do and not kind of obsessing about this thing of whether they are kind of, in quote marks, true or false or fake. It'd be interesting to see what the effect is for his career, but it certainly put him on the map for a lot of people in a way that he wasn't before, let's say that. Well, Lewis, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Ben. You can read Lewis Bush's article on the controversy and other stories on AI and photography on the website and the app. And that's it for this episode. You can find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Amy Dawson, Julia Mahalska and David Clack. And David's also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to our guests, Noam, Amy and Gretchen and Lewis. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.